It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Listening to the sounds of CK Trees, I'm Schmitty, and this is Talkin' Schmidt. Today on the show is the legendary Chuck Trees. I've been working overtime to get this guy on the show, and I'm super stoked to bring you this episode. He's been such a big part of skateboarding since the 80s, both on the board and with his music. Chuck was born and raised in Delaware and spent time skating all over the East Coast with the likes of Tom Graholski and others. He was the first black skateboarder on the cover of Thrasher magazine back in May of 1984 and also was in the OG skate rock band McRad, which has always been a favorite of me and my mates. Here Chuck talks about what it was like finding out he got that cover. He probably photo- photographed about 25 of them, me not knowing what he was going to do with it. Luckily, I was like, Tom, I'm going to call and see who, you know, what's going on with Thrasher. And Fausto picked up the phone from Independent. I was like, Fausto, hey, this is Chuck Trees from Philly. I did this, you know, situation with Tom. You know, I just wanted to check on the vibe of it. He's like, dude, you got the front cover. You got the last black and white front cover. I'm like, what? Also, I'd like to add, we did just get fully restocked with all our t-shirts, beanies, hats, and the web store is up and running again. So if you'd like to help support the show, there's no better way than going to TalkingSchmidt.com and ordering some merch that you can wear. Before we start the big episode, I just want to hand the mic to my man, Flava Flav. Yo, Chuck. 
Run a power move on them. This is Chuck Trees. Yeah. And you're listening to Talking Schmidt. Yeah. All blessings forward. It's cool, like tonight is the night. Here we go again. Just give it the old cause turn, isn't it? Our big dog's in. Smitty! 96 times, Smitty. Thanks, Smitty. We on? Smitty? Talking Schmidt. That's called going to the hospital, bitch. I can <laughs> shit my pants, man. Your Rolodex is fucking deep. It's right. about the one. The one. The one. Who is this guy? thinks he's tough shit. What's up? We're tastemakers. Come on, Smitty. What the fuck? Let's hear it for Greg Smith. Yeah! Before we start, I just would like to say that I was on my way to skate a mini ramp with Eric J, Tim McKenney, and Matt Pales. I got a text message saying I'll be ready in 20 minutes. I pulled the car over, flipped the U-turn, and I headed back home because I've been a big fan of our next guest, who unfortunately's audio got messed up a little in the beginning. We missed two questions Mostly what was cut out was that he was born in Delaware and grew up back and forth between there and Philadelphia. And he also mentioned Skate Master Tate along with Stacy Peralta as being heavy influences. Okay, sorry, but that's part of what happens when you use the interweb for these communications. So now let's go to the interview with Chuck. What was your first photo? Like, the cover was not your first photo, was it? No, um, how the first photo works was, uh, I call, I think it's a funny story because some, someone posted up on Instagram and I kind of have a, I want to post a picture without me writing. Basically, we were so desperate. I was so desperate to be known for, for skating because all the skate parks are closed. And so we were skating a backyard ramp. This guy, Mark Jermack, had a ramp in Newark, uh, Newark Delaware. And so we were taking pictures and and we had the big old school thrashers with the big covers. And, you know, they, they were, we were there from the beginning. So when they started photo graffiti, I thought that, well, if I got to get enough pictures, a picture of a rock and roll, let me send it in. But let me put extra emphasis on how desperate I am to get this picture in there. So I was like, could you please put my picture in the magazine? So they, they wrote that. And, and I feel like such a dweeb. But certain people were, like, championing the idea of, like, yo, you were just this young kid. And skateboarding it literally shit the bed at that point you know it was just backyard ramps and whatever random parks that were around like you know it's kind of like the first wave of the bones brigade was the only thing that held it together along with alan losi because what was big about skateboarding you know even in the early phase of christian Nassoy, he didn't he didn't stop skating although skating kind of hit you know shit the bed and, and that to me was like when we were able to get our picture in Thrasher magazine and make a statement, I was like, okay, this is, it's my first thing. And it to me feels kind of corny, but it's, it's a statement of like, you can send a picture to someone with the right message and they may just gravitate to it and, and push you to go to the next level. And Thrasher mm-hmm. was so good with that. You know what I mean? They were, they were my favorite with kind of giving you energy along with your photo. You know what I mean? They gave it another lifestyle. Onto onto its own. Sure, speak about that a little bit. Um, being on the East Coast, there's no social media, Instagram, any of that stuff. So, the 30 days in between magazines, getting that mag, like if you got a subscription or you went to the uh, skate shop or whatever, that was like a huge deal. Like, and you were so anticipating, like every page, right? Like, yeah, pretty much. So, like before I started talk, talking to Tommy Guerrero and. 
all these other guys that I met out there where I can just like, if they were somewhere, they can just like flash a picture and, you know what I mean? And, you know, do whatever, you know, like send me something in the mail, like, hey, this is the upcoming mag, what it looks like, you know what I mean? But I kind of got to see both sides of it, how Thrasher runs their production line of how they are six to eight months ahead of, you know, where they're at the actual date of where I'm at, you know what I mean? It's, Right. Versus, like, you know what I mean? Most people are going month by month. And I liked how they kind of curated this whole vibe, you know what I mean? That you know, their input was really, really important. And I, I don't know if I answered your question properly, but what, what I do think about their involvement, it was without them communicating our lifestyle that way, we would have, we would have had nothing, you know what I mean? Tommy and I were so connected just through the magazine because we had a presence in the magazine, but we also knew that. We also had to skate and play music and be vibrant and, and just kind of create this thing because we didn't always have the magazine with us. Like right. Bryce wasn't always, you know, shooting. He was skating with us most of the time. So I wasn't used to, he was a great photographer back then. He just wasn't, you know what I mean? Like we were all like kind of gunning for attention out of this so this small, delicate scene. Like when I first moved to the, you know, the Bay Area in 94 to, 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 to figure out what Thrasher was about and, and, and to kind of get that closer connection is what I'm talking about. Like, I just didn't leave it at getting the subscriptions to the magazine. I wanted to go and figure out and meet those guys and, and see what the lifestyle was all about. Yeah. You gravitated towards it, right? It was like a big deal. When did you meet Tommy? I met Tommy, it was probably 1983. Oh. I was at a contest at Del Mar with Tom Graholski and uh, Tommy Fish... Cooksey, I think uh, Orb possibly was there. I know Bryce was there. All those guys were kind of hanging in one pocket at Del Mar, and I noticed everything about them was completely different, like the Jacks team jacket and the way Cooksey skated and he rode for Alvin. So it was kind of like looking at it like Venice Beach in Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., and New York, mm. wrapped up in one meeting all the guys from the Bay Area. You know what I mean? And I also had a love for the Bay Area because of the, the group Tower of Power. I was a, uh -huh. That was a huge funk, you know, kind of connoisseur. And, and everyone looked up to Tower of Power. So I already had respect for the Bay Area musically. But to realize their grit and their originality of skateboarding, like Rick Blackheart, Peter Gifford, and oh, a bunch yeah. of other guys, you know what I mean? They just They have a really badass story of skateboarding and it translated right into Thrasher. So that's what I thought that was a the blessing about Thrasher that you actually had to to travel to the Mecca to get closer to the magazine. It wasn't just like you could do mail order stuff. Maybe if you ordered a lot of magazines, but once you were able to get off the plane and go see how those guys were started super small, but it was it was their grit that kept it that made that just the papers ignite. It's just printed matter at you know, at the end of the day. But yeah, you know, those Thrasher magazines is a complete classic, you know. So, so was it March '84? Was the issue that you had the cover? Uh, May. May. Yeah. What? Let's talk about that a little bit. There's, uh, you're out skating normally, or does a photographer call you and say we want to shoot photos for the mag, or was it just a normal session, or what? Yeah, we were skating Tom Graholski's ramp and up in North Brunswick, New Jersey. It was just a typical session, and it was kind of like coming out of the spring into like kind of like the hot, the warmer weather. So naturally, we're going to be skating outside more and, and, and getting more involved with the ramp. This time, I guess it was April time or maybe like end of March, 
we get a call saying, hey, Glenn Friedman's going to come through because he's in New York. I mean, we knew he was from New York. And we knew that we were at shows together. We had just never really introduced ourselves properly. So as soon as we got the call from Thrasher, Glenn's going to come through and shoot some photos. We have a bit of a skit worked out. We'll work that out, get our photos. And if anything extra happens, you know, so be it. So my, I was basically the extra in it. You know, I was skating in the earlier photos that he was just concentrating on Tom, but I was more or less laying on the platform while Tom was like doing a one-footed infert over me, like, you know, going from the high to low. You know, it looked kind of funny. So we were just doing that and just having fun with it. And that was going to be inside the magazine. There was no talk about the front cover at that photo shoot. So I go up and I do a layback rollout, which is like a Dwayne Peters trick. But the way Tom Graholski started doing them, he did them really fast. Like it's like just kind of like a lean tail, like where you're smacking, you're grinding, smacking, and you're coming in. Sure. And that's how we started doing these layback rollouts of what we call them. We call them fastbacks. So I started doing them on this ramp, and it probably was weird to him because the ramp was about maybe 12 foot high, but it was 12 foot wide, and it was plexiglass. And it, and, and it was rough cement coping. So I really had no room to... to to mess up or I would, you know, run right off the side of the ramp into his garage. You know, it was kind of a crazy situation. So <laughs> what Glenn did is have me do about, he probably photo, photographed about 25 of them, not knowing, me not knowing what he was going to do with it. And then the, se the session ended, we talked and whatever. And then luckily I was like, Tom, I'm going to call and see who, you know, what's going on with Thrasher. And Fausto picked up the phone from Independent. I was like, Fausto, hey, this is Chuck Treese from Philly. I did this, you know, situation with Tom. You know, I just wanted to check on the vibe of it. He's like, dude, you got the front cover. You got the last black and white front cover. I'm like, what the? No way. And like, literally, I was like, oh, you kidding me? He's like, dude, like, it's like, you know what I mean? Because it was just weird that you could talk to the guy, owner from Independent back then. It was so small. And the opportunity was like, wow. It was just, you know what I mean? I was still developing where I was mentally as a skater, you know what I mean? Trying to sure. figure out, I mean, black, a lot of black guys weren't skating. It was just me with these other guys. I was used to it from living in the burbs. But, I mean, when you're, when you're risking your life and you need your identity with you while you're learning skating, you need to have that comfort of, no, these are my dudes. And so, huh. for me, I was learning how to get to know other people because all the skate parks died down. So, my original crew in Wilmington and in, in Delaware couldn't travel all the way to New Jersey like I could I was the one diehard like I was like I know I gotta go I gotta get next to Tom skating because his dad believes in having a ramp in his backyard and that's gonna be the scene for now and, and it turned out to, to honestly be the, the ramp that saved the scene you know what I mean? Rad. The, the, the vert scene the New Jersey devil right yeah <laughs> so Tom Brosley, yeah he he's the shit right yeah, great skater great yeah great Ollie Channel, the Smith grind and stuff. Like I remember, like growing up, he I was a fan. Every time, so <laughs> sick. So was that the first time that you had ever even talked to Fausto? Pretty much so, yeah. Because uh, Glenn was the only person that was going back and forth from New York to LA because he was working for um, he was doing all this stuff with Def Jam, like shooting all the hip hop covers. So he oh, was, yeah. you know, he's from New York anyway, and he was from the early part of skating with Stacy and Dogtown. So he, he knew what was happening in punk rock. So he knew of us, but that was kind of our first introduction of dealing with Glenn and also my first introduction of dealing with Fausto by calling, you know what I mean? Because I knew that there was a guy, Fausto, that was running independent, but we weren't 
Tom and I weren't hoisted up in, in, in the kind of like dream team of what Thrasher could do once they kind of put you on their back and say, hey, these guys are really doing their thing, so-and-so. Right. So it all kind of it all kind of started happening right after the front cover as far as we started to get, in those guys, get to know those guys better because that front cover was also the sequence that Tom had, you know, for his ramp that was giving him the new bump too. Oh, so okay. it was crazy how we were all hoisted at the same time around the last black and white cover of Thrasher and also the first African-American on the front cover, which I didn't know until like 2013 that I was even the first African-American on the oh. front cover. Like, yeah, it was like this other company called How We Roll. It was a pretty much kind of like an art exhibit in LA. It was all about kind of like ethnic skaters, Mexican, whatever, and that whole vibe, black, you know, Latino. And when they had written in my bio, it said, oh, he's the first African-American ever on the front cover of a magazine. I was just like, it's bugged out. And, I mean, and Nike ended up doing a shoe with me for, for that, you know, for 2013, which is, was, it was amazing. But the fact that I didn't even know it when it was going down, because I was so used to Marty Grimes and Freddie DeSoto that were my heroes. I never thought like, like Thrasher kind of reinstated the game of putting the front cover of skateboarding back into the, you know, kind of like the mindset, the market, the market space of people going, no, I want those front covers. Those front covers mean something to me. Like a skateboarder fell off. Action Now magazine wasn't so together. You know what I mean? Thrasher just came out of being a fanzine to kind of like dictating what's cool on a skateboard magazine. That's a, that's a huge statement. Wow. If you didn't have that vehicle to take something that was done by a black person, but I didn't even know that it was happening. And I wasn't even supposed to even get the front. Technically, the front cover was not promised to me during that photo shoot, which is crazy. Like, because now if you gear up for it and you know, hey, this is going to be one of the three or four photo shoots for your front cover, you're going to go into it. And not that I didn't go into it that day, but back in that time, we had that moment. And whoever brought the character to the cam ca camera was a person who was it, they were able to feature e at an easy rate, you know what I mean? Putting it and saying, this is what Thrash is about now, this backyard thing in New Jersey. And here's the picture. Because Tom got the front cover before I did, and it was a fisheye lens, which is super cool. And I feel that mine was more of like an expression of life. My knee pads are torn, you know what I mean? I, this you is got what duct we're tape all over the shoes. Yeah, it's crazy. You know yeah. what I mean? It's funny. Huh. That's crazy that you didn't realize that, though, till so much um, later, because I was talking, I did an interview with Ron Allen, and I was talking to him, and he he's such a champion for you, like, oh, you're, man. like, such a huge inspiration, and uh, he said when that cover came out, he took it to school and was showing it to every motherfucker that would look, like, he's, like, he was so proud, you know, and, like, it was a big deal, so I would think that that would kind of resurface with you somehow. Right, but not you didn't even know till 2013. That's well, 2000, probably 11. Yeah, because wow. we did how we, how we roll uh event in LA, and I went out there to hang out for it. And then soon after that, someone was like, Hey, I got I want to introduce you to someone. I was on the tour with Tommy Guerrero, and this guy was like, Hey, let me talk to Nike about it. It was about at least about probably a year or two after that, 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 that initial me knowing that was happening because. I guess that was a selling point of them doing the sneaker that they were going to actually put a sneaker out that this is the first person that's ever been on the front of a magazine. So it, it worked, you know, for them and it worked for me. And I'm glad that I was able to learn 
it took uh. a year it took a year about to design the whole thing you know it was uh-huh and that's kind of that's kind of a cool thing too that it was in a sense the last of i mean there would be f- black and white photos in the future but this was the beginning of color on the cover Holy. and so to have that last kind of like stamp is pretty sick as well Unreal. that's what i'm saying it's thrasher's mindset you know it's there's a bunch of guys just working in a room and they had <laughs> investors to make it right and and that's good that that's money there but it was never the i never saw money on the table like being bodacious about it mm. like making the magazine happen i just saw those guys being artists like kevin thatcher and fausto and mm. you know eric swenson and like these are the original these are the dons of bay area skateboarding you know yeah. before thrasher was around these guys were supporting skate events they were there they're all family tommy you know to- tommy's brother tony you know just you know just live mo there's all these guys that were around the thrasher ethos and for some reason they thought that that would be the better way to promote an art vision through skateboarding is like emulate their friends and then when we find people out in the world that emulate our friends let's just give them a bigger shine you know what i mean and it's just like of course when it's time to go color hopefully you have the anthem right there and it just fell in place for me there's no way we could have timed it from the first one right wow so cool very very weird were you sponsored at the time? Mm-hmm. Yes, um, I was sponsored by Madrid Skateboards, huh. Goldwing Trucks, OJ Wheels, and Vans. Which one was the? What was your first sponsor? Uh, Madrid Skateboards when I was eighteen. Oh, sick! Was that through co- contests or? Um, Tom and I decided to write. Madrid skateboards. We liked Mike Smith a bunch. He's a you know pro skater back then. He, yeah. he you know invented the Smith grind. That he still doesn't probably the, the best. I feel. But um, Tom and I decided to write each other's kind of like letter of saying hey to Madrid. So I wrote his letter and he wrote mine, and we you know we were truthful about the contest we were you know involved with, and we were also doing 4H skate demos with his father because he had a blue fiberglass mini ramp that they could take apart and put back together and we would show up at fairs and do these demos after cherry hill had closed because we had no parts so his dad took us on it was about eight or nine of us that would get that together you know what i mean so that's basically you know you know everything about all you know what i mean that's where, where it was that's how we kind of connected was bryce on madrid at that time um bryce was soon on after um i i helped Got Tommy Guerrero on Madrid. He was early on that. Um, Marty Jimenez was on Madrid. Okay. Early. Bill Danforth was on Madrid. Wow. Rob, Rob, Rob Roscoff was on Madrid. Oh, before Santa Cruz. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, at one point had like the squad along with myself. We had, they had the squad. And everyone just peeled off. It was a couple of different Midwest Melee contests. Uh-huh. As soon as everyone saw Rob skate, they just was like, yo, you're coming up to California. And that was over. So, music-wise, were you heavily into music at the same time? Were they kind of feeding each other, or like how how did that? How were you already playing music or not yet? Yeah, my start in music happened around age two. I was like beating <laughs> on pots and pans with like you know ladles. Yeah, and uh, I guess my dad, I didn't know at the time because I'm a little baby, but you know he's a musician and he could play all the instruments that I could play that I do now. 
So I guess as soon as he saw that I had rhythm and, and there was energy for it, like creative energy, he just kept me around the, the instruments that were in the house. And so we always had a full back line, which is a drum kit, no uh, bass, guitar amp, guitar amp, organ, a bunch of things in the living room because he had a top 40 band and they were actually rehearsing the living room. Oh. So after the rehearsals or you know before the rehearsals, I was able to goof around and jam on the drums. So probably like age six is when I got my first drum kit, and by age eight, I was already playing shows with my dad's top forty cover band, just doing like a couple of songs here and there. So that's how that's how basically all of that started. Okay. And skating didn't start till age eleven. So music was just kind of like for me, it's a creative thing because I, I I don't. I didn't learn by reading. I just learned by ear. Sure. I mean, I just learned by hearing and seeing someone do something and then just speaking to myself. If I can hum it, I can try to play it. Mm. But I started out as a drummer. So I had the basis of rhythm and melody, but bass and guitar to me were just adding on to how I can like kind of open melody up because guitar does one thing and bass does one thing. They do one, they do their definite thing. Great if you think of a guitar and bass like a drum set, you just gotta figure out how to get the strings into your hands or simplify what the strings are doing so you can get the sound out. But it's all like resonating tones, how I look at it. You know, how I taught myself how to play punk rock, but still keep it professional. You know? uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, were you in a couple of bands before McGrad or was McGrad like kind of the, well, how did that go? I was in one of the band called Jerry's Kids, which we, there was a oh, Jerry's yeah. Kids in Boston, but we were from Wilmington. So it was just kind of like a, we were a cover punk band when I was like, say 15, 16. But McGrath was like my first real band when I moved to Philadelphia in 82. I just graduated high school, decided not to go to college and had no, I mean, I wanted to get in the band, but there was no connection other than the bass player Zeke and I skated Cherry Hill Skate Park together he was 10 and I was 14. So we remember each other as kids when I moved up to Philly. He was in a band called FOD, which is like a well-known kind of punk, kind of speed thrash band. And he decided he wanted to start another band and it lucked out to be McGrath, you know what I mean? Uh -huh. Just the skaters, we all skated in the band anyway, but Zeke and I have the longest connection with, through skateboarding. That's why we kind of started the band to see if it could, it could work because of our connection with skateboarding. Right. Um, and who were some of your influences musically at that point? Um, like fusion wise, I was listening a lot to a lot of Return to Forever, which is um, drummer Glenn White, Chicoria, Stanley yep. Clark, Al Demiola. I was also listening to a lot of Jaco Pastores, Weather Report, Forest Musicality stuff. I mean, there's other bands like James Brown, Ohio Players, you know, Rare Earth, you know, just, you know, all different types of bands, like anything from like, what is it? What's the name of the band? It would be Vanilla Fudge, you know, just the whole psychedelic era. My 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 mom and my dad were pretty much open to that. Okay. What happened was, is once punk rock started entering skateboarding, when I was first starting skateboarding, Devo was in it, so it was kind of like new wave, which is kind of connected to the surf mod scene, which is kind of like all over all these different places in New Jersey. So it's easy for people to hear that music. But to me, when you, when it when it changed in the Black Flag is when it became more about like kind of the underground, we got to rebuild this ourselves, the whole th do it yourself 
ethos came from that because we realized there was a number of us because it broke off into a small group of people like Sex Pistols had already bro broken up, Clash were still kind of together, but they were they were edging their way out so early on, you know what I mean? Because huh. they went through the whole hippie stage of punk rock. We went through the whole like kind of like, you know, F the system version of punk rock. And then it all got really tough with Henry and Black Flag and that just changed the whole dynamic. And that's when skate rock was to me invented because it became more of like, no, you guys do this sort of thing. You know what I mean? So we were all developed at the same time, like early 80s. After 84 clicked, something just changed. Huh. You know, all the fans started feeling like, okay, we're from the hardcore scenes and the punk scenes, but the skate thing is a part of us. You know, Drunk Engines and Faction, McGrath, yeah. you know what I mean? Los Ovidados, you know what I mean? Just JFA, you know, there's all these uh -huh. bands we've seen play, you know, and, and all these other bands have connections to it. Minutemen, those guys skated. Sure. HR, HR and Errol from Bad Brains, they skated when they were kids. Ah, uh, big boys. Big boys, huge influence, you know what right. I mean? Tim from Big Boys is a huge influence of mine. Huge. Okay. Yeah, he's the shit. Yeah. Uh, so Black Flag, though, kind of sparked it, huh? Well, yeah, because when we, when Tom and I were, Tom would go to, was this, I forget what the name of the uh, record store was in, in New Brunswick, but it was like a real important one that everyone would go and buy 45s and do whatever. So like the guy, you know they have some question. Hey, do you think it'd be an all black punk band? And then the next time I come to his house, he'd have the pay to come forty five, and then all of a sudden he'd bring home like the Dickies, or he'd bring home this, or he'd bring home whatever. You know what I mean? And so basically, out of all of those bands that we were listening to before Henry joined Black Flag, there was a band called SOA. from Washington DC and that's Henry's first band and I, I liked it because it was more like mush mouth hardcore like real simplistic beats real simplistic vocals but he had this growling presence about him to me when you have to join a band and sing a song about six-pack that's not really I mean certain bands had like the you know butthole surfers or flipper you know, had that kind of like jokey fun thing, early Beastie Boys, Egg Red Old Mojo. They had that fun jokey thing, but they kind of had to ride with it, you know what I mean, more. I, I just, I thought that Henry had to change his punk rock ethos to make it like an East Coast guy is integrating into like more of like a, a badass band because Black Flag, it just sounds like a badass band. Sure. And then everybody in the band is an, at that time an individual Right. And, and the business hadn't pulled, hadn't pulled those guys apart. So the original lineup of Black Flag, which was either Robo on drums, Greg, Chuck, you know, and then you got this new young dude, Henry, who's willing to stretch his character for the band. And personally, as a musician, because I understood music like Led Zeppelin and all the, you know, the, the, the trad things, I could hear what bands made changes. I really didn't comment on it and try to be like a, a media darling like telling my friends, oh, they made a change. I would just listen for the changes. So when I would hear Henry singing SOA, it was more like he was singing with the band that he was like connected to as a kid. Black Flag 
you know what I'm saying? It was like he was singing to the moment of where the band was. And then Henry Rollins, and then the Rollins, because I've seen Rollins live, that was completely different than anything that I'd seen like live shows of, you know, Black Flag or whatever, you know what I mean? And and to even, to move on to do spoken word, you know what I mean? So what mm-hmm. I'm tripping on about with Henry is that he actually created a way of life that he didn't even end up being at the end of his trek. It was just a moment within the band cycle of how they were writing and the tension of it, you know what I mean? And that's, we were all learning that at the same time, watching uh-huh. watching HR make those decisions about what he was doing. Like the guys who kind of understood music because, and the girls too, that like we love it. Your emotions are, you you notice when someone's making a change, you know what I'm saying? You know it, you know that like, okay, if this guy from DC is popping into a band into LA, is it, is it gonna outshine him or what is he gonna do? He, he has to arrive to the moment, you know what I mean? And, Hemi's probably one of the only transplant lean singers that was able to go from his own band to another band that had singers and have it be successful. Like no other singer has been able to do that with like Van Halen or Bad Brains or right. they've, all had, they've all kind of struggled with, with that black flag to me. And mainly probably because Greg writes his music for the moment probably was the biggest art statement in a, in a tough, in a tough guy package when it comes to punk rock and, and, and how it can go into hardcore, but it's not metal yet, or it's not like beatdown music. It's just about being oppressed and having all this art around you. Because, you know, it's colorful in California. So why would people out there be oppressed? Right. But you get a band like Black Flag and you realize there's other things that they're focusing on that we don't see because we're not out there as much as them. You know? uh, okay, cool. Uh, and then what was it like seeing thrasher drop uh volume one of skate rock like seeing these bands uh whatever faction drunk engines probably were on the first one but like kind of already having an idea of these bands like did that kick start you like wait this can even be cooler than what we're doing yeah because um we were used to maximum rock and roll and we knew that maximum rock and roll and thrasher had ties because they were both from the bay area and they both were steeped in the kind of like this early family of the first stages of punk rock and the first stages of politics in punk rock because of who lived in the Bay Area. And you have to do your homework to, 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 to find out why certain bands went to certain places and certain scenes for certain things. But what I went to San Francisco for was to learn about the history of rock and roll, the history of music, but the history of how these guys at Thrasher created this vibe they also huh. created their vibe alongside Maximum Rock and Roll, which everyone was trying to get in Maximum Rock and Roll because you could just send a cassette tape in and, and a picture, and they would find a way to put you in their fanzine. They, re- mm-hmm. they rarely ever turned away a band giving them a write-up, but they never tried to be a super, super glossy magazine. But Thrasher and Maximum Rock and Roll come from the same ethos. You know what I mean? It's, it's the Bay Area, like, we're going to put this together how we're going to do it. And whoever sees the vision at this level, if that's the grand scheme, we're going to hold to the grand scheme. And Thrasher did the same thing. They were just able to take what Maximum Rock and Roll did with releasing these comps and doing these comps on vinyl. And Thrasher was like, they probably figured out, well, if we have all these subscribers, why don't we either give something away or actually make a compilation and see how it turns into and whether we call it whatever, skate rock or whatever, you know what I mean? They knew that they had an active audience of probably like 500 people, 
you know, that would, would turn it into a thousand within a couple of months just because of the fact that like, oh, you had that cassette. I want to get that cassette. And now right. people are collecting those cassettes. Yeah. Those cassettes are triple times the amount of money if you get a mint, you know, Skate Rock Volume 1, 2, 3, or 4. I mean, all of those are... We were developing... I mean, they were developing bands around what we were like developing our ideas from because we, to me, we were thinking like bands, but it's not like when you're a grown person and you're playing a song you've played for 20 or 30 years, you know it like the back of your hand. Yeah. But those songs were new for me and I was experiencing punk rock and hardcore changing like Black Flag and other bands that have taken the leap. Like, it made you want to push your music harder. So we were, we were always learning. You know, if a band did it, a record and people loved it the people that were into the studio vibe of it would analyze well what's the guitar tone or what's this doing and and that's not really accepted in punk rock because it's like you're supposed to like not know what you're doing not know how to play just be kind of whatever but once we realized that like circle jerks you know the group sex was recorded in a m studios in, in in hollywood like i mean just in la that's a multi-million dollar studio <laughs> some of the biggest records in the world have been recorded at this studio Right. And, and it blew my mind that they still got that grit out of that really professionally. Like, those rooms are like a million-dollar rooms, you know, yeah. easy, you know what I mean, $1,000 a day for that. And it proved to me that it was like, wow, they won because that record is so monumental that you hear the grit of everything of what they're doing in a punk rock, like, ethos, like, wrapped up in it. We thought you had to record in a crappy studio. Don't, wow. you know what I mean? We did everything backwards. And... and <laughs> That's why I'm so happy that those guys were able. They were able to let to let you know let, let us learn from them. You know, a lot a lot of people. You know what I mean? Yeah. It wasn't just about put on a shirt and and, and and act weird. It was like people were actually learning how to make records and learning how to produce and learning how to run labels and management and everything. There's some really important people from back then. So that did beautiful work. You know what I mean? Was it? I haven't really talked to Mofo about it, but I'm I'm assuming he was instrumental, right? Being in the drunk engines, working at Thrasher. Um, did you know him at that time? Yeah, um, Mofo was the person that basically gave myself and Tom uh, this title. He called us the East Coast Connection. Excuse me. And it was more or less. I saw Mofo as someone who was a. He would make catchphrases cool, due to the people that were around him. Not to mention. He was a, an artist, a singer, and also he's just a part of this whole photography clique that for some reason his work is just as valuable as a Glenn Friedman mm. or, or anyone else of, that, of that, that kind of time because he was so involved with getting along with everyone. You know? So we had to know Mofo because he, he made it known that we should know him. You know what I mean? Right. And how, he, how he would mess with us. At a, you know, at a photo shoot, if someone would get too big-headed, you know what I mean? Like, he just never would let it get out of hand. I love those stories. He told me a lot of shit, like with guns and all kinds of different people, rattle their cages. A lot of cars. He <laughs> a lot of cars through his ears. It's funny guy. <laughs> so you guys were on Skate Rock 2, right? Uh, yes, and I think 2 and 4, I think it was. There was... Um, prevent That Tragedy... I've always wondered the very beginning. It's like, uh, yo, Tom, prevent that tragedy. Dave, right. You know the deal. Where, what's that from? Um, that was me in the studio kind of bugging out. It was like McGrath had already been together for like a year and a half. And so we were getting a little bit more confident and, and comfortable in playing. 
and I knew we were going to have this opportunity to um, do these songs for the skate rock, you know, you know, volume. And so we had already recorded our first record and I kind of felt more confident about what I was doing. But what I wanted to do was take some of the kind of like jargon that we say when we're skating or sessioning a curb or sketching a ramp. Like if a guy comes back from surfing, he'll come back with surf lingo. Yeah, yeah. Dude, you don't shred. You just wear the uniform, dude. <laughs> That's me actually saying it because this dude, glue glue ball skater from New Jersey, will come up with all these things. And he just got back from Pensy. Like just funny, 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 funny things that we would all just sit around and laugh because we didn't have cell phones and, and 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 weird things to like kind of distract us. We had to have banter. And so basically, I took one of glue ball's things and just like you know. Yo, Tom, prevent that tragedy. Yo, uh, Tom, prevent that tragedy. Dig, right? You know the deal. It's more or less kind of like prevent being a skater amongst these people that are so kind of boring in our world because society, they just didn't accept skateboarding. It was just kind of cumbersome, you know, to them. We were a small group of people then compared to how many people are on skateboards now. And right. Some of the still spots are still up and they're not overrun. It's just that we were just such an eye shot to society that the people just... <laughs> wanted to put us down because it, they couldn't skateboarding started developing so fast once we got the core back together through thrasher that society couldn't keep up with it because thrasher wasn't a, wasn't a society driven magazine and not mm -hmm. the ethos not the bands not the photographers i mean there was connections to it stacy came in and de delivered his vibe into it but they really kept it amongst the people that were building these blocks you know and and, and that's it's just it's the main success for Tommy and Thebo with Real and Deluxe and Absolutely. Crooked. Like Fausto spent a lot of time with those guys, giving them a vision and making sure that even if he did make mistakes, it was still the vision that he was about with him making the mistakes within the process of, you know, making all this work. You know what I mean? Mm. Certain people don't want to take the decisions, the bad ones, sponsored i'm sponsored i'm not so they kicked me off they did whatever they don't even know that like these people have to micromanage numbers and they got to micromanage their investments sponsored skaters aren't even thinking about an investment you know what i mean it's like these guys took something and believed in a bunch of vagabond weirdos that were just like we'll skate anything we'll sleep on any floor we'll do whatever right skateboarding is not even skateboarders are still doing that now but it's not like you know people have sponsors now they have lives they've been able to strike the biggest part of the financial boom in skateboarding, you know, because that may all change due to what's going on right now. And for the people that don't know our original ethos, like what Fausto and KT and even, you know, Peggy and Tracker Larry down in, you know, in San Diego, what those people taught us is just like kind of stick to your guns, 
You know what I mean? You know, you can wave them big, but it's just it doesn't. It's skate. Nothing's going to be ever bigger, big, bigger than skateboarding to me. Nothing will be bigger. Like no person, no. Mm. Like the art of skateboarding and, and how we are all learning from each other and and how hip hop and art and everything just works with skateboarding for some oddball reason. I mean, I think it was worth us getting crap because people didn't understand us. You know what I mean? They, they didn't yeah. understand what it was like to take something raw that was undeveloped that had completely failed in society. The surfer thing didn't work. That you know, what they tried did not work. It just right. didn't. It wasn't even connected to the land. It was just connected to like the the image of what a skateboarder looks like, not like you know what people are doing now, sight reading and sight checking for skate parks and all that. Something. They weren't thinking about that. Right. So once that part, once the 70s crashed, we had to rebuild with no support and no other lifestyle has ever been able to do that or had to do that in the face of a growing America. You know what I mean? Mm. Go to college, do this. You know, what are these knee pads? What is this music? You know, why? it's making all this racket. You know what yeah. I mean? What is this? You know, who, is these, who are these girls? What is this? Like, who are these people? You know what I mean? It was like they didn't realize a whole new way of communicating needed to happen because we were desperate. But there was still no one trying on a big level, trying to, like, guide us. You know what I mean? There was a lot of wild, you know, inventions in skateboarding and yeah. a lot of personality clashes in skateboarding, which are all been figured out and made better now for the future of skateboarding. But to figure out where it is now to where you can't even make the comparison of where it was when I was coming up as a kid versus where it is now. It's just like just the whole look of the skateboard is completely. Right. It's you know I mean? changed a lot, evolved tons. Yeah. Sure. Well, crazy. 1984 is a huge year then. Yeah. Big. Like you get the cover of the mag, Skate Rock's kind of, I think that's when Skate Rock came out. Uh, McRad is starting to build steam and everything. Like that's a pretty big year for you. Yeah, it was. It was heavy. It was oh heavy. man! And also, it's... University of Penn had put a picture of me in their '84 yearbook because I used to skate in front of their architectural building on Penn's campus. Huh. It was cool to do street plants on. So it was that was to me my mark for Philly because it's an Ivy League college and they never really kicked me out of the university. They you know once they knew that I was sponsored and i was there skating and i was treating the university like a skate park they let me skate and other people come and and you know oh, really man. tear through the campus it was fun that's amazing and and then savannah slamma was the first was that the first uh video that you guys had a song in like for soundtrack on a video yeah that's i think that's basically the first time that stacy had his hands in putting the like the, the deluxe kind of like record label crew faction odd man out uh. all those bands drunk engines he had all that he had access access to that music through brian ware and okay. so basically once they had all the footage they they decided once these records were out there was no other vehicle to get them to the next level and stacy just happened to put them in savannah slammer by chance and it worked you know what i mean it was just a fluke because there was no talk about it once again but when you go back and look at the, you know it's like it's kind of the start of once again taking that small nucleus of people and giving them the, the soundtrack when everyone in the video even the bands everyone knows everyone like sure. everybody like you know what i mean
for how big that contest was, I probably think pretty much everyone, even in the stands, from some other way, everyone probably has a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend that was at that Savannah Slammer because it was such a monumental contest. Right, yeah. So, so many lovable pros. I, I wasn't there as a pro. I was just saw the aftermath of it and knew that it was going down. Huh. It was cool to be involved with the, the music side of it and how it still lives on for people like, yo, that was my first introduction to like street transition or so-and-so and so-and-so or watching Christian Asoy skate street or Tony Hawk or, you know what I mean? All those guys had to go to that contest and make sense of that course. There was Yeah. It was a huge deal. I remember seeing it as a kid. I was like, yeah, like you said, it was kind of the street transition, right? Yeah. And then the Powell video with Ray Barbie's part and stuff, is that probably the pinnacle like for mcrad I mean, that's huge, right? With Guy Mariano and, and Gabriel Rodriguez and Bam This. Yeah, that's that that part of weakness, which was weakness was also in Savannah Slammer too. Uh-huh. But Stacy was always about kind of creating a new vibe. And the only reason why I know that more on a personal level is I wrote Stacy when I was 14 after his interview in Skateboarder. Stacy wrote me back and said, hey, I'm going to start this thing called the Bones Brigade. It's not going to be a skate team. It's not going to be anything that's ever been done in skateboarding. It's about a bunch of guys from all these different areas. And two of your friends or people that you skate with in Cherry Hill are on the team. Jamie Godfrey and Mike Jesilowski. They're part of the Bones Brigade. You know what I mean? This is our thing. You know, like, when I knew that Stacy was creating when skateboarding was still raw and skateboarder was still vibrant, like, when it fell off, he still kept the Bones Brigade going, you know, as a team. It never kind of like fell off so once stacy kind of attached himself to the music and thrasher because of you know fausto and independent and those guys knowing each other from when they were kids it just made sense that they would just really utilize the art side of what we can all do as skaters you know what i mean and that's that's what made kind of all of our records have another life after the savannah slammers because by stacy using one or two songs from Savannah Slammer in public domain, it helped promote the sales of Savannah Slammer because you were able to listen to the whole record and get the whole vibe, but then you were able to go back to public domain and see Stacy capturing Ray Barbie and Chet Size and you know, you know, Chet Thomas and Steve Size. Seeing those guys kind of take their version of street skating to the next level, which has nothing to do with Savannah Slammer. It's all street footage, it's all obstacles, it's all tech and the two songs that 
Stacy used, which one one is kind of a pop rock driven thing, and then this one's kind of a metal thrash thing with McShred. I was tripping out that Stacy knew how to take music that he was already used to and apply it to new footage and not have the music be worn out. Like, you know what I mean? Like that's Yeah. Like Stacy was creating magic within all of that because he was able to create kind of like a interesting market of skateboarding through Savannah Slammer and even the title is, is catchy. The whole thing about it makes sense, but it's even catchy to the time of skateboarding to that essence of that was probably the last version of, of what they were going to see as community street skating. Like public domain made you focus on the actual character. Ah. Like that weakness made you focus on what Ray was doing, what all those guys were doing. And that's what created the Mike Vallelis and the throw offs and, you know, all these different people. Because you were able to see up close what each person was doing, and it served a different purpose in that connection of why Stacy made that choice musically. But I think he made that choice musically because he was already used to the music and used to the people creating it, and he knew that everyone involved loved skateboarding because it was only a small amount of us, you know. It was sure. Just, so it was nothing was developed back then. It was just about okay, we have the magazine and we have this connection with Stacy and Fausto and everyone down at Transworld. So you have to do your thing. But there's mm. all this middle ground in between stuff. You know, parks weren't around. Nothing was around. So those guys made great choices. Yeah, Stacy is like huge. It was so influential, a pioneer. Like you can't say enough things about Stacy and all the things he did. Super heavy. Super heavy. Hey, let's take a quick break and hear from some of our friends. Hey, it's Corey at Blue Plate, 3218 Mission Street. Come see us. Meatloaf, fried chicken, deviled eggs, Dollar Olympia beers. We're here every day of the week. We got a garden and we got smiles on our faces. Come let us make you happy. Greg, I hope you let me do this. This is some shout out to some new listeners and a couple hardcore listeners. I'm going to do the hardcore one first because he deserves it. This guy's heavy. First love on YouTube. One of the first lovers on YouTube. Uh, he knows Shet. He knows them all, too. He, he's he's down. He knows what's up. Uh, it's you, Mark. Mark Andrew. Uh, I think he's our biggest fan, Greg. He even listened to you on Quarantine Call. He loves it. He loved the Dune one. Um, I want to shout out Kieran Treese. I hope this goes on his. Frontside shoves to fakey kid on that train. He's looking good, dude. Looking. I wish you'd turn on your comments. Dude. We'll get some love on there. But I get it. Maybe. You, I get it, dude. Cool breeze. I get it. Uh, one more. This girl reminds me of Nessie Darps. Uh, it's Kiera Hargrove. Your energy is magical. I see big, big things in your future. I really do. I wish you the best. Come back to Cali. She's in Arkansas on the ranch. Loving it. And my chick would love to switch shoes with you. You better believe it, Kiara. Uh, that's Kiara Hargrove. Go sub her. Go sub CK Trees. Uh, Jonathan Straccia. I wish you the best. You and your chica. Dude, things could be worse and less is more. Jump in the river. Take some handy wipes. Wipe yourself down while mama goes in and showers up. I get it, dude. Life could be worse though. Less is more. Dude, remember that. Uh, <clears throat> Nessie Darps, I gotta give you props, dude, for your Nolly Tray flips. Uh, blew my mind. Within two months, we both learned it. That means a lot to me. Keep it going. Go sub Nessie Darps, a.k.a. Nessie Diamonds on YouTube. All these guys can be found on YouTube as well, but they are listeners, whether new or old. I wish you guys all the best, and we love you. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. 
For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. And now, another first impression with Timothy Donald McKenney. This is probably the best episode I could think of, one of my dream episodes. And I'll tell you why, because uh, me and my homies played Weakness over the Stanford Airwaves. And it's the only time I've ever got to play music over any kind of airwaves like that, singing to singing Weakness, because that's our anthem. It's a, it's a generation's anthem in the skateboard world. And I want to give probably the biggest shout-out I probably could for this pod, and it's to uh, C.K. Trees. And I'm almost doing it in tears because I just read these words a second ago. And I told him, what, you're telling me you get to watch your dad practice weakness in the garage? You're the coolest kid on the block, CK. And his words were, thank you. I couldn't imagine anything without skateboarding and playing music with my dad. And those are some heavy ass words, Chuck. Your kid's a genuine champion. And so are you, dude. Hey, it's Matt D. at DLX Skate Shop, 1831 Market at Guerrero, as in Tommy. Come see us. Real, anti-hero, crooked, thunder, venture, spitfire. We are here every day of the week except the big holidays. We've got a curb and we've got smiles on our faces. Come let us get you stoked. I got to talk to you about HR and Bad Brains because that's like everything for us like that was our biggest band that was like you know bad black flag was cool all those bands were cool like that's what kind of got us in but once we saw bad brains it was over like and to this day they're probably top three bands of all time like in every genre Mm -hmm. so and you had the pleasure of fucking working with those guys can you give us like a little bit of story or anything or yeah. I don't know. yeah well like hr i met hr when i was 19 uh he asked mcrad to play a show opening up for hr and company uh it was like i think it was may 84 and, and june 84 ish and we I mean, went down and met him it was you know great it wasn't like seeing the bad brains it was his brother was the only person earl from the bad brains that was in hr and company hr and company but that record and what they were doing and all the musicians in this band at that time, to me, was his, was his best band that kind of fit his personality, stepping away from the Bad Brains. That's me knowing HR outside of it. I knew the Bad Brains music, but mm. I met HR on his own terms, doing his own music. Mm. So when I first started kind of getting back into, you know, kind of like reforming McRad and... Bad Brains have reformed. I went to see him live. And then I saw the influence of like, like they played Quickness before and Reignition before it was it was even released. Like we just went to the show. And I remember when I heard Reignition, I was tripping out so hard because it, it was at Trenton City Gardens in New Jersey, which is like, you kind of risked your life going to shows in Trenton, New Jersey back in the day. But it was worth it, you know. Because it was a bigger stage, louder PA, and you could feel the, the thump. When they went into reignition for the first time, I was tripping because I was like, whoa, they took R&B, they took a Led Zeppelin vibe, <laughs> and they somehow took m- metal 
and they create they created like this staggered pattern and it, to hear that live with what hr was doing like i mean i already knew all the the first music but like your your mind you can't explain the excitement that you're feeling when you know that like I got that attitude. I got that PMA. Dan, 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 dan. And then you hear, bam, 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 bam. you're like, what? And then it works. And then they make a song out of it. And it ends up being, to this day, probably one of the hardest songs that you could hear live. Or if, when that song is played right by the Bad Brains, it, it literally sounds like a, a, a bull is is in the venue. It's so powerful because of how they oh, wrote that song. And that, by, by the Bad Brains being a favorite band of yours or anyone else's, if they could actually try to make the comparison between the, the roar cassette and reignition and the only way you're going to do it is you have to analyze it musically there's an emotion there yes which is the, the lyrics but mm. the music and what they were getting after in that short amount of time was so amazing that you would have to be a fool to have to not have them be your favorite band and you could only pay five or ten dollars to go see them live and they would sound like that live Right. We're better than rock bands. We were paying twenty, fifty dollars, a hundred dollars. All the lights, all the whatever. Bad brains came with just the the raw dog, and kept it that way until they stopped playing. They kept huh. the same formula because it worked. Big SVT, you know, Marshall, two Marshall half stacks, simple, you know, drum kit. You know what I mean? Just keep everything basic. Keep everything right down the line, right within your emotions, and that's that's why they're an amazing band. I'm, that doesn't get out there. The Rasta thing, they play reggae, they play punk rock. It's fierce, but what it is, it's like you're, what I learned from them playing drums for them for a long time, in a long time, meaning six months of like doing shows and, and, and living in 25 songs, you know, two and a half hour sets, you know, 28 days straight, with two <sighs> days off, travel days. Like I was able to realize it wasn't about the technical ability of the songs because you could never really jam on the songs. Each song had their part, but each song you could play differently with an emotion each night if you just let the part be what it is. Like if you're feeling a little bit more angst that night, your your punches and in, in the corners that you're going to make as a drummer are going to have sharper reflexes and then the band hears it and they get on it. You know what I mean? And, and it could just be a mood judgment. Sometimes it's tour frustration that you let get into it, but the way that I felt the Bad Brains were able to make that music explode is they were able to take the basics of music and add more motion into it. And as the motion got into it, they applied the pressure of what you could do sonically with your instrument. And, right. and Ian even talks about that. Like Daryl was just really gifted with taking an idea that he could hear in his head. And by the time it reached his hands, it was a whole nother situation. <laughs> the same way, you know, they just had it. But, you know... It, most people think a band like that, and this is not off the subject, but it's on the subject of why people should love a band and say, I love them because they're one of the best. Maybe they're a band that they shouldn't write 10 records of that magnitude of music. They should write what the art gives to them, the art of thinking in that mode, the art of being in that mode. And once HR says, I don't want to see people beat themselves up. I got to go over here and do my thing. People should know that like whatever the bad brains have done in that, space and then in time is no other rock band has been able to put out records or you know a feeling like them and still be a, have an affordable living and you can still be able to see them at shows get something signed talk to them like 
most people have a story about HR. Some of them are not nice, but a lot of my people have personal stories about HR. Uh, Those people can't say that about Eddie Van Halen or David Lee Roth. Those guys right. are like, whoa. Like, even Nicky Pop, I mean, a lot of people have, you know, stories about him, but it's not like how, how many people know Mike Watt. Everyone knows Watt. Uh, Watt's just a personable guy. The Minutemen were one of the best bands in the world, but he felt that, I feel that Watt felt that his personality was punk rock. Like right. Bad Brains, the band was punk rock. People get attached to the band so quick, you know what I mean? They, the band can't grow, so the band has to, the art has to die because the music eventually has to die. Versus like Watt has never died, HR has never died. Like, right. Not that H, you know, like Doc and Daryl and the rest of the guys of the band have faded off, but their umbrella of their, how people know them is through the Bad Brains. And, and I wish the people would realize that like the re, the reason why a Bad Brains fan says that they love that band, you know, kind of just to their heart is because there is a lot of emotion in those songs. If you strip the lyrics and you get into, these are four humans in a recording studio, like it sounds like they're tearing the recording studio apart. Like The energy's insane. The energy's completely insane. So <laughs> back to emotion, it's not like they're scatting and doing all these weird scales. It's like they're taking from all these different environments but it's about the energy of those four guys creating that. And I'm just lucky that we had the Bad Brains as a band to kind of springboard ideas off of because so many of us have used them as an, a positive influence. You know what right. I mean? Okay, yeah. I saw that documentary uh, on HR and uh, it kind of left me wondering. Uh, they kind of framed it like, is did he do drugs or is his mind <laughs> like you know right like it's like what happened to hr it's like uh, i think like basically with hr i think all those guys were like experimenting with kind of like with the drugs that were around in dc like and if you think about a big city you think of it like it's got buildings and people vibe whatever but really what most of these cities were are, are port towns you like see uh. Baltimore, Camden, Wilmington, Delaware, Philly. So you have all these people exchanging these vibes. I don't know. It's just, I think the kinetic energy of what what it's all about, with, with it being, with everything being so raw, I don't know. It just, it just makes it kind of crazy for people to kind of understand where they would, how can you judge someone that comes from such a raw vibe of how, how to exist? You know, these port towns. Mm. The Bad Brains wrote like that for a reason. Not that they were frustrated and they were deprived. I mean, they had different things happening to them, but it was at a point to where if you had a problem back then, they tried to sweep it under the rug. Social problem, weird problem when my son's gay or daughter's whatever, gay, whatever, or they're kind of slow or, you know, the, the word, you know, how they use all those derogatory words back in the day. I don't want to say them because people still take them the wrong way. Mm. But the dunce mentality of life, if certain, if that was casted upon a bunch of people back in the day, they would start to believe it and they would feed into their kids. And then when their kids would kind of like, kind of open up the floodgates to see what life was really about, like HR explains in, in the film documentary, I had to get dropped off in Jamaica and my mom was going to come back for me. And then she didn't come back. And then it took a part that was weak with him, which was maybe sorrow and woe and a connection with someone that was his mom. You know right. what I mean? Not good or bad, but just a title mom. 
the definition of mom means that she should be there. But when someone leaves you and is not clear about why they're leaving you, and he states that in the documentary that it made him feel a sense of desperation, that could have been one of the first starts of him creating characters outside of his own self, Paul. You know what I mean? Because yep. Paul is really HR. Mm. It's always been Paul. And, and not just me, people. Regardless of how big HR is, I guarantee you 50% of the people don't even know his name is Paul. You know what mm. I mean? Like, which is a good alias if you're into that type of mystery. But after knowing HR and working with him for years and seeing him come through different things, and I mean, he's all right now. Everything's completely great. Mm. But I saw a person that was fragile with his art and fragile with himself. And maybe sometimes because a parent can't ask a child, are, are you an angelic person mentally? Which means you need to have your art and you need to have your stability with you. You know, that we never get, people don't, don't get asked that question regardless. So if you get exposed to being, having a desperate feeling like that person is not here. And then all of a sudden you start channeling your art because if you're, away from your parent for four or five, six months, you're going to have to get creative to kind of take away the pain. Mm. That taking away of pain could be the start of him creating HR, that fueling of, because I never knew half the things, even the schizophrenic parts at the end. I yeah. didn't see that. I worked on a film doc. I helped score the whole thing. Our music didn't stand it due to whatever problems that they had with the film. But I was there for, you know, basically the beginning of 2012 for that whole year, scoring it and watching them come together with the pieces but the whole last half an hour i didn't even know was in the film because we had all kind of broken off into their own ways and oh. finished the film by itself so when i saw the film in philly like because my i have a brother that has a schizophrenia huh. it, it blew my mind because i'm sitting there looking at hr because we had the q a after it, all of us you know for being involved with the film Oh, Q and A with it, but I had to really, you know, stop the questioning and be like, "HR, you know, like really, the last half an hour kind of choked me up because I never knew that one of my punk rock heroes had the same problems that my brother had, had created, and 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 these problems are created out of stress and out of someone saying, "Well, this is my image, this is my art, whether it's your toy, whether it's your make believe friend, or whatever." And certain people, the inside, their fabric is not made to be like kind of shifted around like a silk screen or something. If that person sees affection and love in one way, they see it that way. If, it, if they're distorted, they have to create it. They have to start creating other people to, to, to get rid of that sorrow. And mm. that's what I saw in HR, HR schizophrenia, that he was able to create other characters extremely quick because of probably what he dealt with early on in his life. And I'm just guesstimating due to how the mind works. Right. But to know that, I've experienced my brother having schizophrenic, you know, episodes, and it's really, really heavy. And he's good now too, you know. But it changed the way he thought about himself. It changed the way he thought about music. It changed the, the risks that he would take, because for your mind to take a risk, you have to challenge things that are scary. And if things that are scary already in your head, you're not going to want to challenge anything other than the challenging your emotional state of being, which HR did in front of all of us. Right. You know. You know it's Paul was Paul, the guy that had what he wanted and HR turned into this guy that he couldn't control. Yeah, you know what I mean? and, and, and no one wants to get down to 
we all have a mind and we all have like skin and we all our emotions work how they work but you know why does the rock star title like the mom title have so much dad title have so much impact on someone else that's involved with them because to me if the person comes into this world that has a fabric of needing one thing and they get a taste of it and then it's pulled away from them it changes their dynamic and they will create out of out of necessity they will create out of desperation sure. you know what i mean it's just that it's it's the reason why kids in the ghetto verse whether they're white or black think a certain way have a certain tenacity even if they make it to, you know ahead in business they still have that dog eat dog tenacity if all the lights go out and everything i know what it's like to live off of this 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 i've seen it i've done it i refined it it's good you mm. know most people don't want to take those chances and i think that hr was created because he wanted to heal himself for what was bothering him but then he also realized that it gave him extra power to create around these great musicians, which were Doc and Daryl and his brother. You know, mm -hmm. so he, he luckily had a group of people that could hoist his problems mentally and emotionally, which we all have, but they couldn't find a way to have it, to make it into creating a longevity other than HR having to go through everything that he's gone through. And the reason why he's standing now in his 60s is, is because he actually went through it and you can still see him standing now he will not do a backflip he doesn't really want to do any aggressive shows anymore i mean mm -hmm. this is what he's saying to me he said it to me like a month ago he's just he wants to do things that resonate with his heart and if he's always wanted to do that even while he was singing the bad brains but the people always wanted to see hr from the bad brains not paul from hr right that's going to create uh, an, another separation of like wow i thought you guys were my family another attachment gone kind of awry and then all the, the things start happening you know wow, happens, you know what i mean it's it's, it's, a, it's a to me it's a process because you can't create out of your mental capacity you can't sing out of what you can't hear you know what i mean if you hear it you can sing it if you get so i can't imagine how hr could take his emotional state of being and create that character because that's one of the best front men period right. let alone if he was mentally unstable, he was probably the best mentally unstable front man that I've ever seen, period. And to write something with a message and have it still stick to this day, and he's still able to get on Instagram and speak his business and speak from his heart. Huh. And he's not preaching. He's really speaking from his heart. I mean, the guy had brain incredible. surgery. He's gone through everything. Like, he's been through it. You know what I mean? So yeah, it's, like, it's incredible. It's wild. You know what I mean? And I just... Outside of the bad brains, HR is doing amazing, but it's. I'm a bad brains fan, so I want to see them get back together. I mean, they have enough impulse right now that they could make themselves financially set by uh, doing five shows a year. Right. There's that much demand for them amongst the nostalgia of punk rock, and and, and to me, regardless of them wanting to get together, or HR wanting to do it. I don't know. I don't know if my mind thinks that like life should be viewed as like an, you, you have opportunities in this gleam of like kind of light. You know what I mean? And it's like, and not that money's everything, but within the state of affairs, if I was a part of a big apple that was a band that had a nucleus that could draw in funds and we could still play our songs that we wrote when we were teenagers, regardless of whatever emotional business, my mindset says keep the band going 
and bands shouldn't have to have all the saga just to be oh i love them because they went through everything i'm like no you love them because you can sing their songs and they made you sing songs that weren't in your head before but now they're in your head forever mm -hmm. so to me for the world not seeing what it's like to have a real bad brains member play a bad brain song and they're all still alive these people are missing out on some of the best music ever yeah i know it you know it yeah you, you can you can all you can just get into a mode thinking about wow when i first saw him my mind was blown you know what i mean totally the only thing that's weird about it is like it's it's kind of cool to keep it how it was because that's your memory and then if you see it now you want to compare it to then you know that's the hard part where you're like oh back in my day you know yeah. to the kids that have never seen it, it gives them the opportunity which is what's necessary but like for the people that lived it they're like that energy was a part of that time yeah, 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 you can't totally. re you can't rebottle that yeah it's, it's 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 a wild like splitting hairs the only only and i guess i i, I see it from a standpoint of like I played drums in the Bad Brains. I wrote it for them when they were getting back together right before they did like their last record um, with uh, Yauk. And um, the shows that I did, Rody, where we had to actually kind of keep an eye on HR because he was like, we really couldn't take eyes off of him. Like everyone had to watch him. Huh. Like we played a show in uh, Portland, Oregon. And when I saw a 10 year old white kid wearing a Bad Brain shirt, and sat backstage because his dad was able to get him backstage. Like literally everybody that was working the band, I swear to God, that it was like they wanted to tear up and be like, "Are you kidding me? This little kid is here to see the Bad Brains." And there's a bunch of grown men on stage, and this kid is looking at him like to the Rolling Stones. I was like, "That's why they should step on stage." Right. Oh, they influence once, you know what I mean? Yeah. One kid per high school of how badass it is for four dudes to stand up on stage and even get close to those arrangements. I mean, there's no band on this earth that can sound mm -hmm. like the Bad Brains still to this day. Like, I saw scary. him. I saw him play uh, a not a huge auditorium, but a pretty good size auditorium at Phoenix Am. It was kind of like a reuniting of the band I hadn't played in a while. Right. The place went ballistic. Like people were diving into seats. Like it was like insanity, and you're just like this. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and he's not doing backflips. He doesn't need to. The music speaks for like yeah. he, you know. Yeah, and it's, yeah, it's that way anyway. I mean, I just it's it's cool to hear that how that like an interview coming towards my way, I would hear someone else talk about what they love about the bad brains because people don't think that I would love bad brains like that, but they don't realize that I like as a musician when you hear a band that you know that they can play, but they're staying within this. It goes back to the word ethos, the lifestyle of punk rock, and mm. they they really put out some great songs. Like you can really get lost in those songs if you put a set of headphones on and just shut off. Like your mind starts to do different things, and and, and nine times out of ten, it's, it's highly creative. You know what I mean? Like I, I've used them as a pecking order of like, hey, if you guys want to write songs, just pick apart HR's parts. Just listen to what he's doing. Take the whole band out. I mean, the whole band's playing and, and the music, but just listen to HR. And right. then once you find out what he's saying, add the drummer in, and then add the bass player, and then the guitar player in per song, and see if you can concentrate on a different person and see if you can figure out how they're creating this music. And I can only figure that out by playing live with them without HR. 
but I can see Doc and Daryl and how one plays behind the beat, one plays ahead of the beat, one's thinking, one's used to be a bass player, but he's a guitar player now, and the same with, you know, they were playing each other's instruments melodically, and there's all this push and pull, and then in the studio, they want it to be an art piece. There's no overdubbing. Everyone has to play it live. So if a song has to be tracked five or six times at that intensity, I mean, your arms feel like noodles after doing something like that. You know what I mean? I, I yeah. Rock for Light, we did it five times in a row. We recorded a version with Chino, and it was probably one of the hardest things I've had to do in the studio because to deliver it, I couldn't drop off because I didn't want to be the one that they're looking at, like, hey, you know, we may have to do it again if it's not right. And right. That's art, you know what I mean? Because we're all grown men at that time. I mean, Chino was stepping in for HR, but the fact of the matter is, it's like, they know that if you put that, that energy and that connection into your, your creative side and your art, and you can make that resonate with people, and you guys can produce an outcome, you can build off of that, you know what I mean? Bad Brains are completely about, if you get what the, the title of the name of the band is, Bad Brains, it's like, taking your mind and making all that energy that weird unformed energy into something creative and then being able to build off of that you know what i mean it's just the politics are one thing about the band which could cause stress to hr but mm -hmm. i know that the original reason why they wanted to do that band was because they were creatively resonating together and, mm -hmm. and it just worked they couldn't have done it any other way you couldn't have made a super group like the bad brains it's never been done right Fuck. Okay, well, um, 2020, uh, you're probably, how many projects are you in nowadays? You got, you're playing with Tommy and Matt still, right? Yeah, I'm playing with Tommy and Matt doing Blacktop. Uh -huh. um, and I do solo tours with Tommy and solo tours with Ray. So we all kind of support each other to keep the wheelhouse and the shows flowing around. And then I have a bunch of other, I have a project with my son now called CK Trees. Oh, and we're doing kind of like McRad-esque, but it's more kind of like tuned down, like Doom, Stoner music. Uh, you know? What's so your son play? He plays drums. Oh, so sick. I'm playing baritone guitar and singing. So we're just doing fun shows at skate events and, and things. But other than that, like, I am involved in a lot of projects, but most of these projects are things that, like, that I, like, being a studio, studio musician early on with having a punk band, I was able to keep my punk writing out of my professional world. And then my professional world kind of gave me the work ethic to do my own thing. So once I started producing my own records and doing my own projects, I put in, put in enough visual hours to see how a record's done, how it's created. If I have to tune the drums, if I have to play bass, if, if I have to randomly play guitar, I spent all those years, you know, pulling that, you know, mm -hmm. in perspective, you know what I mean? It's just, it, it just makes it, easy for me to be focused on the music focused on why why i'm doing it you know what i mean how cool is it to be playing with your son oh it's, it's good i mean like he's growing now because he's 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 turning 18 so he's got his own way of thinking but we've been playing shows since he's been four and kieran has actually started the school of rock has like a like kind of like a five and under age bracket now they start letting into the school and kieran was the first kid that they based a program around. So basically at age four, he was able to play with kids that were age 15, wow. 16, that were in, you know, school of rock because we were always jamming at home is what I love. So he's I kind of following after your footsteps. Like yeah. at an early age, he got to hit the drums and, yeah, and figure it out. Yeah, and he rides, he skates and does his own thing. But I've never really tried to teach him how to play the drums. I only taught him how to count 
like huh. his his drum come his drumming comes from a more of an emotional thing because I wanted his teachers at School of Rock from age four to age 17 to be the teachers. I didn't want to get in the way of that, like let him trust someone else and be creative with it. Uh -huh. But once you pull the kid back into reality, you kind of have to kind of pull the ball of yarn together to say, well, what type of musician do you want to be? We can play this and do this for fun and you can still have a regular job or you can do, I'm not giving him the road that I took. Like, I'm just doing this for punk rock. Screw the system. Blase, 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 blase. Uh -huh. you know, I'm, I'm more like, don't burn through money. If we get some extra money, let's try to invest in a, a small property. Let's uh -huh. try to find a place where we can create and get loud and not piss off the neighbors because just because you have money, you can't move into a neighborhood as an artist and you have loud friends and skateboard ramps and, and the whole neighborhood goes, yay! You know, you, your investment could easily turn into something that could plummet you into, you know, being bankrupt. You know what I mean? So sure. I want him to know all the things that we were testing out of ignorance, not testing out of frustration. You know what I mean? Right. That's what a lot of the early punk rock and, and skateboarding was to me. We're testing things because you, if you would give away one thing and test it and it was kind of vagabond, that was great. But if you do that to the law, if you do that with your money, or if you do that with opportunities, those opportunities dry up. And then the newness of skateboarding never changes. It's kind of like the art of energy as far as how it comes to the actual person thinking about what's going on. Got it. Um, I could talk to you forever. Uh, we're wrapping it up here. Uh, but uh, it's it's coming off of a pretty harsh week here. And I think it would be cool to talk a little bit about this uh, after this George Floyd incident, like what's you're you're out in Philly, you're in Pennsylvania somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, is it crazy out there yeah, too? Uh, yeah, I mean, and, and to, to give a backstory on, on Philadelphia, um, there's a uh, family here called Move M O V E, uh -huh. and they were kind of a radical hippie, dreadlock looking uh, family. There's a, a lady called Ramona Africa, uh, and a bunch of other people that were um, involved with that movement. As a kid growing up in Philly, we saw them get kind of terrorized and things torn down and riots and stuff like that. And then there was also social unrest in Philly. So we're used to the rioting. Mm. But what happened basically on the day of my birthday, basically May 30th, you know what I mean? Like what I saw go down in Philly that day and the day after, I mean, it was the most planned aggression that I've ever seen. Huh. And, and I could... It was scaring me because I, we were, me and my son were going, while they were riding, we were still driving to the skate park just to, to kind of bless up our thing. So to me, this pandemic, we've skated through every day of it outside and in a, in the, in the, in the spot. And also through these rides, we've been skating every day. And so my whole perception of this pandemic riot is if I step out of my box, I'm going to catch hell from both sides of people that are going crazy. But if I focus on skateboarding and music and I know that what I'm doing, we've built out of no one getting into this, then through all of this chaos, most of those people won't be lurking at the spots that I'm at. So I should give thanks for that. But also as I'm analyzing what's going on in society, if you're going to put a bunch of well-known products that are seen on TV in places where people can get at them, and you can't hire your own security 24 seven, then you're depending on the masses that basically fuel the cities to stay calm under any conditions, knowing that they're sh had to have consumerism shoved in their face. Mm. 
you know, 24-7. And if you can't afford the consumerism shoved in your face, let alone buy the consumerism that's shoved into your face, when you get a chance to lash back at what you see out of, out of any sort of anger because you can't get it out of love, then what happens is, to me, the riots create more of a heartache that everyone can, can get into, and they'll take their agenda, which they're focused on is their anger, but they'll also focus on, I must take something from someone else because something's been taken from me. And mm. I agree wholeheartedly with that situation. But what, I, what trips me out the most is that it started seeming like it was like, oh, they did it, so let me start doing it. Mm. Like it just seemed like everybody was out there looting. They probably didn't have any business out there looting. Right. Like, to me, if, if I'm going to go see... Well, that's the problem. You know what I mean? It attracts people from other communities that want to just be a part of this, like they were calling it a parade, uh, instead of, uh, you know, instead of a protest, it became a parade. And yeah. these people from other communities, anarchists are gravitating towards, like using it as an excuse to do a bunch of other crap. And that overshadows what the whole thing's about. Yeah. Yeah, simply I think is what people are getting into right now is like, if it's in a place where there's money and I don't have money, regardless of what they think of me, I can never imagine myself here risking my life to guard my business. So if I'm on the other side of looking at money as a deterrent and I got to react back to that, there's no way that person's ever going to graduate to getting something or even risking that because nine times out of 10, the, the, hoops, the hoops you have to go through just to get a business in a location like that is ridiculous. And sometimes it's not always fair to get into the business mindset. You know what I mean? Hmm. It's, it's, it's not, it's kind of weird. It's like you have to figure out where you're at as a human being. You know what I mean? And, and it, it's almost like the riots have made me forget about the fact that there was like this pandemic going on and supposedly this virus that's attacking all these people and it's putting people in shambles and mentally my mind was saying, well then how could these people riot? Mm -hmm. How could every police officer be strong enough all over the place to be deployed to do what they do at that level where there's supposedly this bug out right. and I don't see people dropping over in the street from the bug. I don't see one person going, oh my God, my COVID's kicking in. I can't war anymore. Yeah. That's every major city has been hit with like destruction. Where do these people get this energy from? Mm. Like, this is bullshit. Like, how can you say that we're stuck in a house for 50 days? <laughs> and then you come out and you're ready to tear everything apart. Like, like there's yeah. people have to be thinking on a mindset of like, something's not right. Right. How can you be locked away in quarantine for the first time ever in the society of, of a human being for 50 friggin' days and then get out and be ready to war and no one drops over from the virus out in public? Yeah. There's been one report like, oh my gosh, this guy did it and COVID popped out of his chest. <laughs> so, yeah. But it, they were on the news about it. And I'm not trying to say that there's any conspiracy. I'm trying to think that people are trying to say that if you have problems with upper respiratory, 
you know, situations or even having problems with an upper respiratory lifestyle, you shouldn't be out in public as much as you think or sharing things from people as much as you think because the amount of congestion and inflammation you're going to get may feel like you're dying. Sure. And you may not want to come back after that. Once again, it goes back to, can you, do you have the tenacity to pull all the mucus out of your body and, and, and get into it? So obviously all the people that are riding had enough energy to get all that COVID out of their bodies. Hmm. And go do it. If, yeah. if COVID is where it is, if COVID is a real enough thing, and I'm not trying to test anyone's ability of what a doctor says, I'm just trying to figure out how did they get all that energy to do what they did and not one person kill over from this worldwide pandemic. Yeah, it was one of the first things that I thought, like we just went from social distancing right. to social unifying. Like, totally. Like it within 24 hours, like how the fuck is it? This is so yin and yang. Yeah. It's, well, it I mean, is, it's just, uh, it's, I'm happy that we all at least made it through. You know, I've been kind of watching the news a bunch and, and just kind of taking my own thing on. I just want to be, I just don't want skateboarding and the arts to get so mangled up in the perception of what people call society. Cause they don't, I don't think they understand arts and, and what this whole mm-hmm. pod thing is even about. They just think that it's a time for them to chime in on their phones versus like, this is an art form that's been created because we have access to the, the, the internet and the computer and not everybody has to wait to be a Howard Stern or mm-hmm. so-and-so and so-and-so like, you know, it's just someone can say something one day and it resonate with a thousand people. And I was like, that person, I like that, you know, mm-hmm. it's right. easier to get to, to the, the, the good stuff in life. Absolutely. Well, that brings us to the, to the end, which is, uh, we need some tips. We need some PMA tips. We need some uh, advice to get through this hell and get back to fucking shredding <laughs> with our bros. What the hell are we going to do here? I don't know, man. <laughs> Have fun. Enjoy your diets. Enjoy your uh, people. I know everyone's like trying to uh, make sense of something. Uh-huh. I don't know. I, I think that everyone should at least start figuring out what their worth is on their phone and on their computers. And if you can create just some monetary business and make it fun, you know what I mean? Because it's like, it may get to a point. It looks like we're being honed in as far as, because Americans are pretty gaudy. We're pretty spread out. So it seems like all of us are being honed in and that's how I'm taking it. Well, if I got a hone in my travel, if I got a hone in who I'm around, if I got a hone in my actions in society, I don't want to, I want to be able to get on every plane. I don't want to get on a plane too drunk and be flagged from the plane or, or, you know what I mean? Like I'm not Mm -hmm. trying to test if my personal power is going to like make me different than a regular civilian, which most people in the arts world and, and other people do until a pandemic like this comes along and says everyone has to shut down for these reasons we can't do it the way we used to i mean that i can get that it's just the super pressure of it if you make that into your lifestyle you're not going to be able to eat right live right sleep right think right and we still you got to think through it all until your limbs are gone and you can't move and you can't swallow i mean we still got to think i mean it's hard we all go through depression it's pretty hard right now i mean it's, it's pretty we're, and, and Boo Johnson, bless up to him and his family. He, uh-huh. he just went through something really, you know, tragic. And, you know, it just got me thinking again. It's just like, there's, we just can't let our kids just run around. And you just can't be as vagabond about responsibilities until your kids know how to fend for themselves and, and, and not be kids anymore. 
I mean, the, the value the value of being a kid in a society, you could lose your life. Right. If you want to be a regular kid. Yeah, big love to Boo and his family. That's that's hard. I saw that. Uh, yeah, man, my heart goes out to him. Yeah. Uh, um, you got a good song that we should end it with? Um, probably. What would I do? Probably would be uh, PMA by Bad Brains. That is a good one. <laughs> Hell yeah, dude! Thank you so much for taking the time. It's like. It's such a big pleasure, and uh, I'm claiming this is my favorite one that I've ever done or that I ever will do. Cool, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> uh, big love. Uh, enjoy your um, session today. Are you going to go skate, yeah? Yeah, we're skating at a place called uh, The Yard over in Amblers, a little indoor park. Okay. And tell your son, my my good friend, uh, Tim McKenney, he, he follows him on YouTube, and he's a big fan. He loves seeing oh, him great. follow in your footsteps okay let's have what's on cheers man <laughs> thank you man have a good day stay safe and healthy hope you to too, see man. you in real life okay man all right take care bless Thank you for listening to another episode of Talking Schmidt. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Anchor, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. When you subscribe, you'll get notifications every Tuesday of new episodes the minute they become available. Also, please leave reviews and a five-star rating. It's the best way to help the show grow. All of the episodes will always remain free, but if you would like to help support the show, you can do so at TalkingSchmidt.com, where you can pick up some merchandise like t-shirts, beanies, hats, and stickers. The website has an entire archive of all of the episodes, with extra photos and videos. Email us with any suggestions, comments, or ways that the show may have improved your life at TalkingSchmidt at gmail.com. All interviews are conducted, edited, and produced by Schmidty. The intro music is Mary's Cross by the band Nature. A very special shout-out goes to the executive director, Cheryl Camisa. This is Talking Schmidt, where the Rolodex is deep, but the conversation is deeper.